Hello everyone, good evening. Charlotte here from Enriching Environments. I'm just moving my Ramadan lantern so you can see them properly. That's a bit better, isn't it? You can see them now. Hi. Good evening, everyone. Ramadan, Ramadan Karim to everyone. Thank you guys for joining. Can you see my lanterns? I actually bought these in Ikea last Ramadan, Ramadan last year. Um, but they're so pretty, hey? Um, and they are keeping me going during our um, Ramadan writing challenge as well, which we started on, what day did we start that? On Sunday, we started our Ramadan challenge, didn't we? So I'd love to hear how you're all getting on. Um, thank you so much for joining me. This evening, we are going to talk, hi Tinka. This evening, we are going to talk about um, food, glorious food and mealtimes and eating. And um, I guess it's going to be a slightly different approach than um, what I guess used to be, uh, hi Sam, what used to be sort of said was the, was the right way to support children with eating would be to, um, I don't know, give them fun plates or cut, I don't know, pieces of toast into the shape of a cat or something like that, you know, all of that stuff. It was kind of really in fashion in the 90s and, and noughties, wasn't it? That type of approach to food, sort of... Um, almost, I don't want to say tricking, that's not really the right word, but sort of, yeah, making it fun so that the child would eat it because it was fun. And to me, that always seemed really um, underhand and a bit strange as well, because I really, really love food. And um, I guess as most of us do. And I don't want my children to be tricked into eating something. It's more you know, this is, this is what we eat and this is food and food is amazing because it has all of these sensory experiences and because it smells so good and because you can get involved in food preparation. It's, um, you know, it, uh, food is a, is a pathway into um, a doorway, into another culture. You know, when you go on holiday, you can't fail but to be immersed in culture. Sorry, we haven't been on holiday for the past year, but you know what I mean? When you go on holiday, you can't fail but but to to be immersed in um, in another country's culture because you are eating, usually when you go on holiday, you're eating the food of the, the, the customary food of the country you're in. So um, food is, uh, is culture, is experience, is sensorial. Um, it's a pleasure, it's a sense of community. Um, I love that Luciano Pavarotti quote, I've got it on my website, which goes something like, um, one of the nicest things about life is that we have to stop at regular intervals and have something to eat, or something like that. But it's, uh, I love that quote, and it really obviously sums him up as who he was. Um, but it's so true, isn't it? We should be we shouldn't be eating to live, we should be living to eat. Yeah, that's the right way around, isn't it? Um, so this evening I wanted to talk about this specifically from a Montessori perspective and um, how we actually create an experience around food 
on many levels, on a sensorial experience uh, level, but um, as part of this practical life, and uh, we've got a lot of people who have joined. Um, hi, Emma. How are you? Thank you for joining. Um, you've done well to be on this with your time zone, my love. Um, Emma's joined from the UK and with uh, small people at home. It's a it's a it's a good uh, it's a good effort to get to get on. Um, so what we're going to approach today is we're going to look or this evening we are going to look at um, it's an experience we are taking the I guess need to eat out of this whole conversation around food and we're talking about making it into an experience and we're going to take the um, the, the need to eat out. And the reason that I say that is, um, is that we're all mammals. And essentially, if we are hungry, we will eat. Our body tells us when we are hungry um, or thirsty. And so at some level with our child, and this is really, really hard when we are parents. And this is really, I think, even harder when we are a mother. And hard um, if we've breastfed as well because we never really knew what they were having and whether it was enough and I know that was one of my recurring nightmares when Olivia was tiny was is she getting enough milk and I would uh, and the nightmares I would uh, that would wake me up would be that I'd been lost somewhere and I couldn't get to her and she was hungry and she couldn't have any milk that was one of those things so I think for us it's really really hard this food issue because we we may have a situation where, and this is a situation we talked about in our, during our workshop at the weekend, we may have a situation where we feel like we need to draw boundaries around food because we've become a restaurant and it's driving us mad. You know, our child says, I don't like it. I don't like what, what's for supper. And, um, and then we start offering other things because obviously we're terrified that they're going to be hungry. We don't want them to be hungry. It like pulls on every single one of our heartstrings that we could think that our child would be hungry. So it's horrible. But equally, we are really fed up with going to the fridge and, and, and offering five different options. And then that power struggle ensues. And then, you know, um, supper gets delayed and then bath and bedtime gets delayed. And, you know, all of those things. So it's a knock on effect. But equally, we don't want our child to go to bed hungry so it pulls on our heartstrings for sure um the the thing about eating but what i want to do is approach it from a different way let's approach it as an experience and um let's do that by tapping into the human tendencies um before we go into that does anyone have any questions you'll occasionally be able to see wiggly's tail because she's sitting on my lap here let me move the camera a bit so you can see her Maybe she's here. Um, if anyone has any questions, fire away. Otherwise, I can begin. So let's begin by looking at the human tendencies. And the human tendencies are characteristics that every human has, no matter where they um, are from in the world, where their culture, their socioeconomic group, the um, type of place they, they live in, whether it could be um, an indigenous tribe or a tribe, or it could be a Westerner, or it could be um, somebody in Southeast Asia. It doesn't matter whether they grow up, in, grew, grew up in an urban or a rural setting, whether they're growing up um, in poverty or in wealth. 
Um, every single human has these natural tendencies. Every single child, baby, has these tendencies. And these are, it's up for debate, but roughly between 8 and 12 characteristics every human has. And to give you an example what the human tendencies are, are that all babies, all children, all humans have a need, uh, have um, curiosity, so a need to explore their environment. That's, um, it's, it's inbuilt, it's... Um, it's part of our DNA. I don't actually know if it's part of our DNA because I'm not a scientist, but it's like that inner drive. It's, it's We can't help ourselves but be curious. We can't help ourselves but move. Children, and you'll see, you have babies, you have young children, they need to move. Absolutely, it's not something they control. It's that inner drive because that's how they learn. Um, another human tendency is the need to communicate. Another human tendency is um, self-improvement, a need to better oneself, a, a need to um, perfect, uh, repetition is another one, repetition into mastery. We see that particularly with Piccolini, with our toddlers, don't we? They repeat and they repeat and they repeat until they perfect a skill. And then often, once they've perfected the skill, they will leave it and they won't be interested in it anymore. So all of these um, uh, human tendencies uh, make up uh, a human being make up a whole human being and let's look at food from the perspective of um human tendencies so we um sorry with you uh if we look at food then three um just yeah three human um human tendencies i thought of linked to food that i've noted here are um exploration curiosity um self-improvement and um belonging to a community, become, becoming an active member of a community. And so look at, let's look at it from that perspective. So exploration, curiosity, children are naturally curious. And as you know, that until the age of 18 months, they put everything in their mouths. So that means that naturally when it comes time to eat, and we do that by looking at our child's signs, not from what a book tells us that we should start at four months. Or I mean, it seems to be getting easier and easier that people are being told to start solids, but it's not at four months or at six months or at eight months. It's when your baby shows you and, and that um, desire for exploration. Remember, it's a human tendency. It's innate. It's, um, it's part of their inner drive. So they will want to explore everything. And exploration for a baby of food means squishing and throwing and licking and shoving everything in their mouths. They're not going to use cutlery. That's fine. They don't need to. They won't be using it till later anyway. Um, that means exploration. So we don't need to feed them because they need to explore it for themselves. If we're just passing something to them on a spoon, then they're not exploring it. I know it's a mess and I know that we don't want them to explore it, but that's what they need to do. This is one of the key elements of creating this love of food because they are allowed to explore it. They're allowed to feel it. They're allowed to start to discern what they like and they don't like because they've been an active participant in the eating experience. Um, so that's number one. Let them be an active participant in the experience. You don't want them to be completely passive just having something from, hi Andrew, from um, uh, 
a packet onto a spoon that you're feeding to them. Now, if you have to use um, packets or jars or what have you, I'm not saying anything about packets and jars. What I'm saying is that you could then serve it into another bowl so the child can see it, so that they can put their hands inside the bowl or the plate and feel it in their fingers. What I don't want you to do is squeeze it from the packet onto a spoon and put it in their mouth so they don't have a chance to experience it themselves at their own time and their own pace. So whatever you're cooking or however you're cooking it, or you're you're making it from from scratch or um yes baby Ladini. yeah um you know and uh, it's really funny because the lady at the beginning of baby Ledweenie book said it, it should just be called babies eating which is what what they do if you let them um if you let them just just cook them the same food that you're having anyway for your family just don't add any salt and no heavy spice no heavy spices don't make it spicy but you can still add flavor um and from day one of when you start their, their eating journey their discovery of food together then you can offer them the food that you're eating there's no reason for to have something else obviously if um pre-packed things are what you need for your lifestyle and you have two parents working and, and what have you or if maybe if you don't have two parents working if it's not possible for you to cook you don't like cooking yeah the packets are great but you don't need to be um, uh, feeding them in a passive way. They can be active members, even if it's even if it's from a package, even if it's from a jar. They can still be active members of the community uh, and their eating experience, and that's really really important for them. So, firstly, is let them explore from the earliest days that they start um, being interested in food. Let them explore with the hands, they're gonna to need to get it all over the hands, all over the face. I've got so many great videos of Olivia with like spaghetti bolognese in her hair. And I think the first thing she ate was chana masala actually. Um, and I knew she was ready for that because she could pick up chickpeas by with her thumb and forefinger. So I knew she was gonna be okay and she wasn't gonna choke on them. Um, but obviously you always sit next to and you supervise a child closely when they are um, eating. Absolutely, safety is the most paramount thing. You wouldn't go off whether they're having puree or they're having home-cooked home food or chickpeas or whatever. You, you don't go off and do anything else. You sit together because it's part of their experience as well. So another thing to add to experience, the first thing is exploration. The second thing is this sense of community, um, which is, again, one of the part of human senses, feeling that they belong. So our child does not want to be um, sitting in a high chair having this eating experience as, uh, you know, sitting, being stared at while they're eating. I mean, it would be weird for us as an adult, wouldn't we, to go somewhere and someone else not to eat and someone just to sit and stare at us while we eat or even worse, feed us. So when they are having a snack, when they're having something to eat, have something as well. If they're having banana or blueberries or whatever it is, you know, whatever stage they're at, you know, whether they're a little baby and they're just trying banana, have a bite of banana with them or um, orange or satsuma or whatever it is, have what they're having because that gives them confidence and don't have it to pretend, actually have it with them. So um, I'm not sure about recommending croissant to eat but <laughs> when um when we first came to dubai olivia was seven months old and one of our rituals is we'd go to we'd go to a hall and um, we'd have one of those little mini croissants and she'd share that with me and um and part of that amazing experience was eating together and seeing her in that process because she was so immersed 
in that, I mean, a, you know, a poor croissant is a pretty amazing way to start your, you know, your eating journey, isn't it? Or the beginning of your eating journey. But it was just that experience where having it together, it gave her confidence because I was already eating it. I was enjoying it. It was, I wasn't doing it for pretend. She was, um, her food was, was equal to my food because it was the same food. Do you know what I mean? Don't, we don't need to create any separation here. Whatever we are eating, they're eat, we, we have the same snack. And if, um, we obviously have to work out what's going to be the safe snack and a good snack for them, but we have the same as them. And that's part of the eating as a community. They get to understand that there's a pleasure in eating together. In um, Then you have conversation and you chat to other people around you, you know, if you're in a restaurant. Um, so that's part of the experience of it. So number one is let them explore. And secondly, we sit with them um, so they're not passively on their own sitting in a high chair. We're sitting with them um, and sharing that experience together, having the pleasure of that shared experience. And then um, the third thing is the what I could think of that was linked to the human tendencies is self-improvement. And where that comes in is once your child is sitting up comfortably and... Um, has gained a bit more motor control so can transfer from hand to hand and is doing intentional work with their hands so they will grab something and really sit in all of those things then you could introduce doing some food preparation with them so you show them how to peel a banana so you um, give them a toddler safe wooden knife which I sell on my website if you'd like to go to enrichingenvironments.com and you can buy one from there um, you can introduce them to that food um, preparation process from a really, really young age. It's not that they're going to learn how to cut a banana at eight months or peel a banana or cook their own food. No, not at all. What it is, is adding to this experience. So you're already sitting together and you're eating and you're talking about the food that you're having. Um, and then the next stage is involving in them in the preparation of that, you know, Cutting watermelon, um, you know, you can do that with a wooden knife. You can cut strawberries with a wooden knife. You can cut, um, when they're a bit older, as a piccolini, you can cut cucumber. Um, you can cut banana, um, all of these things. It, those are the easy snacks that you, can, that you can prepare with a child. Again, it's all adding to that eating experience. And what we do when we talk about... Um, having children having this whole complete experience of the of food is as they get older then you involve them in more and more of it so of course you're going to the supermarket um or you're having the delivery and they're unpacking the box with you and when they're crawling you know you can invite them to come to the fridge and choose what they'd like to have you know would they like an orange would they like a banana are you going to cut some apple together and you involve them in and obviously you just start off with a snack preparation to begin with um Excuse me. We we take it slowly, but um, they're immensely capable. From about a year old, um, a child will be able to cut um, things like banana and things like strawberries. If we set it up on a uh, on chopping board for them, and we've shown them how to, um, uh, you know. Um, place the food down and hold it and have you peel the banana whatever it might be they can do it it's just us involving them in that process and the really the other reason why it's so important to involve them in this food preparation is because it really releases those power struggles there's 
because food is such a natural part of life, they're an active participant in the eating experience, in the food experience. And um, everyone who's done workshops with me knows that I say over and over again, we've got to let them be an active participant of the community. And this is really, really hard because um, all of the stuff that's sold to us as parents, um, particularly when you are pregnant and you're vulnerable, everything that's sold to us um, gives us the impression that our babies are passive and helpless and we should keep them that way in order to keep them safe. And actually, um, it's completely the it's completely the opposite that they want to be an active member of their their family, their home, their community. Remember the human tendencies. That is um, belonging is a human tendency. Being part of a group is a human tendency. They don't want to be on their own, you know, in a bassinet in the corner. They don't want to be. Um, a passive recipient of their food. They want to be engaged in this process um, um, from start to finish, as you know, at their level in their own time. That's um, that's for sure. We're not pushing them to do something that they can't do. But what we do in order to move towards this and to facilitate this is everything is simple, ordered, and accessible. So the um, everything for food preparation. So your wooden toddler knife your chopping board, um, two knives, two forks, two spoons, child size, you'd have a, a low shelf um, accessible in your kitchen or just outside the kitchen, wherever your setup is at home. Um, you have that so that your child very, very early on will, once they're crawling, and we do this every day, they will crawl to their cupboard, they will take out what they need um, and they'll be heaving, and I, I remember Harry so clearly, my son, like heaving a chopping board behind him to come and do food prep when he um, when he was crawling, and he couldn't walk yet, but he could heave his his knife and his chopping board across the floor to come and cut the banana or strawberry or whatever it was. Um, so everything is simple, ordinary, accessible, accessible to them, so they can get what they need. Um, clients that I'm working with at the moment, little piccolinis, at uh, 12, 13 months, as soon as I say snack time, they are climbing up to the sink, they're washing their hands, they're coming back down again, they're going to get a chopping board, they're going to get a knife, um, their knife, they know how to get the uh, fridge, um, they know how to get the fruit from the fridge, they need help with the fridge door, but they know all those steps. And this is gradually, gradually building up, this is a whole food experience. I'm not a separate Part of this. I am a part of food preparation. I am engaged in this whole experience and that's what's so important um, for little kids because it makes them invested in the outcome and as they get older and they start doing, um, you know, maybe they're going to school and they're packing a packed lunch and that all helps because they've got the skills that they need and Olivia and Harry by no means do they, do they pack their lunch and prepare it every day but they prepare something food-wise for themselves every day, whether it's a snack or it's buttering their croissant or breakfast or whatever it is, or they're preparing their lunch for the following day for school. They prepare something every day, and these are really, really vital skills, vital life skills. Just how do we look after ourselves? You know, um, if we can teach our children these basic life skills, you know, as as little ones, as as two, three, four, five-year-olds. 
um, they can actually look after themselves at quite a high level. That's pretty, that's pretty awesome stuff that we've got done, sorted, that they can carry through in, uh, you know, throughout mm-hmm. childhood and, um, you know, and, and into adulthood, of course. So um, it's an investment for them. And they are invested in this process of um, uh, food, of eating, of mealtimes. And then there's less of um, a push-pull dynamic when we actually get to um, the meal table. And let's come to actually eating now and setting boundaries around, around that. Um, what else have I got here? So, meal times. One thing that's really important to know for babies and young children is they need to feel that their feet are planted on the floor when they're eating. So, a high chair where their legs are dangling, for some children, won't feel comfortable. Think for ourselves, if we've been to somewhere with really high stools, like bar stools or a table with with, um, really high stools, if we can't tuck our feet under a bar and our feet are just hanging, our legs are just hanging, it feels really weird, doesn't it? And that's what it feels like for children. So having a high seat that they're hanging in doesn't work for a lot of children. And as a result, then you can really start to have a lot of um, resistance around mealtime. They don't want to eat or they want to climb down and eat. They um, they cry whenever they get in there. Um, they want to get out, all of those things. Or um, another form of uh, resistance is to start throwing, throwing everything. They're up high, so it's a temptation to throw everything anyway because of um, cause and effect, which is um, of great interest when they're babies. Um, but so what we recommend instead in Montessori is to have a low table and chair. And so we sit cross-legged on the floor and opposite them in a low, uh, sitting at a low table in a low chair. And so that means that their feet and legs essentially would be at right angles so that they uh, their feet are on the floor and they can feel grounded. They're no longer dangling up here. And also the benefit of a, of a low uh, table and chair is that dropping something or throwing something when you're really low to the ground isn't really as interesting as it is when you're up in a high high chair because throwing something on your high chair gets a great reaction from the parent and actually it's quite fun to really throw something really hard isn't it whereas if you throw something from when you're low down you just drop it and it's only you know a foot off the floor that's not very interesting so it's not a pattern of behavior that that is repeated very often and even if you throw something when you're when you're not up as high it's just not as interesting and it doesn't get as interesting a reaction so it's not something that that becomes habitual for them so that's one thing about the low table those are two things one they're grounded and two um it can eliminate those power struggles around dropping things and throwing things you know the fork that gets dropped 500 times during the same meal it, it eliminates all of that um then when you feel baby is ready for um, a high chair, you get one of the, um, it doesn't need to be stocker, there's lots of other people that make them as well, a, a trip trap chair where it has the, um, the steps basically so they can climb up. And the great thing with that is that when they're babies and they're toddlers, the second um, the second step, as it were, you put that so it's an exact right angle for their feet and their legs. So they are going to be completely comfortable and feel grounded. Even though they're raised up high, their feet are grounded on the, um, on the step. 
So that's really, really important. And so when it comes to mealtimes and your child is rejecting everything and saying they don't want it, they don't want it, they won't want it, what what do we do? Um, you know, Harry and Olivia still do that. They did that this evening, actually. <laughs> they still do it. Um, it's an interesting reaction if we get annoyed. But also, it, it, it can sometimes just be, a, I'm really tired at the end of the day and I don't know what I want. It's it's asking us to give a boundary. It's um, it's something that we shouldn't take personally. We mustn't take personally. We mustn't let our ego get over it. And I know it's hurtful because we've spent ages cooking a meal, but it's probably because they are tired. It's the end of the day. Um, they're probably really tired and, and don't feel like they can eat. So it's just the easiest thing is just to resist. They, you know, it's unconscious. This is unconscious behavior. Um, and then it can become a habit because then if we try and tempt them with lots of different things, if they are hungry, of course, they're going to choose something. And then we can get into that stage where we become a restaurant and then we become frustrated and we become annoyed with them or we become resentful. And that's not what we want, want to happen at all. Um, our rule in our house is um, whatever I... The, the main course I'll put on the on, on the table and then we often have um, cheese and, and maybe fruit with yogurt for pudding. Um, but the cheese and the fruit and the yogurt is on a separate tray. But the rule is, is whatever I've got out for supper or lunch or whatever it is, that's what we're having. And I don't say it in an angry way or whatever. If they say, oh, I don't like anything on the table, I want something else. And I'll just say... Everything that we're going to have for supper is on the table and you can have your choice from whatever, whatever's here. If they don't want the main course and they just want to eat half a block of cheese, that's fine. It's totally fine. Whatever, they can have their choice from whatever they are eating. If they just want to eat yogurt and pomegranate and blueberries, that's absolutely fine. I don't mind, but I'm not going to go and start offering other choices, particularly because, you know, this often happens at supper, but particularly because it's a tricky time of day anyway. And they are asking for, unconsciously, they're asking for our support and they're asking for our guidance if, um, you know, if these scenarios happen. And we can, we can really tie ourselves in not thinking that we need to offer something else when actually we, the best thing to do would be to hold a really firm but loving, very, very loving boundary um, and eat with them. That's the thing as well, eat with them, even if you only eat a little bit eat with them it's we can't unfortunately go and dash around and, and try and clear up everything else I know when I've done it it ends in disaster they don't eat as well if I sit and eat with them have a cup of tea with them then it makes all the difference in their ability to stay at the table in their ability to enjoy their food in their ability to not resist everything that um that I've put in front of them so um and another little tip is if your children are really resisting supper times um, specifically sometimes because they're tired just tweak it by moving it 15 minutes earlier um you can do that just move it 15 minutes earlier and see if that makes a difference in um how they can cope at supper time because sometimes they are just super super tired and i found with olivia and harry if they have supper at 5 15 instead of 5 30 it makes a huge amount of difference by 5 30 they're just wiped out we try and have supper at six o'clock no way they won't like anything, they'll cry. Um, Olivia will really, really slow down her eating so can't eat enough, uh, yeah, can't eat what she wants. Um, so yeah, those, um, those are your few, your few tips for, for meal times. You, um, you obviously know what your child, uh, oh yeah, <laughs> Nada's, Nada joined the um, one of the workshops last weekend 
and we talked about it was great because it was on um, discipline and boundaries um, and uh, and limits in the Montessori context and we started talking about food because both Nada and Diane to the participants were talking about how their boundaries are around uh, are around uh, meal times and Nada in my post you you noticed that I mentioned um, you may have noticed that I mentioned a mum who was struggling because her daughter was asking for chocolate for breakfast every day, even though chocolate had never been on the menu and never offered, but she was still having this scenario. Well, Nada, who just made the comment, that's she is the mum who, <laughs> who that was happening to. Um, and what we spoke about with um, with Nada and the, and the challenges of breakfast is offering that choices again, being uh, letting our child be an active participant in the whole process of eating breakfast you know would you like pancakes or would you like oatmeal let's measure it out together let's do this together let's cook together really allowing them to be an active participant because um offering choices is amazing because it releases power struggles but also if they are focused on what they're going to eat the choice of what they're going to eat um and then you can go into that scenario and then they're focused on actually uh preparing it with them then there's no they there won't be a need for them to resist that it's taken their attention away from the yes no you do this and I do this power struggle and it's just melted that away and taken it into the experience side of it and that's what we can do if we ever feel that there's a power struggle with um with, with anything but particularly with food and with meal times we can ask ourselves, what experience can I create here? I'm not suggesting that you jump through hoops, but actually, what can I unpick? What part of this process of this meal or this snack or this shopping trip or what have you, what can they be part of that they can um, be invested in? So when it comes later down the line to actually um, serving and preparing that meal, that because they're emotionally invested in it, they'll be so proud and so excited to... Um, to eat the yogurt and strawberries because they washed the strawberries uh, earlier and they cut the um, and they cut the tops off. Do you know what I mean? It's really just being part of that um, amazing experience of food and and seeing what we can do to um, cultivate that love of food. Um, and we don't need to be good cooks, and we don't need to be really that interested in food ourselves. But if we can keep focused on the golden rule, how can my child, how can I help my child being an active member uh, of the community, an active member of the family in this, an active participant in this, and whether that's food or dressing or anything else. So if we can start from that, and then with food, think of the experience. How can they be an active participant? And how can this be an experience? Can, you know, when you're making pancakes, you can talk about the origin of pancakes, you know, they can scoop out the cups of flour and and crack the egg young children love cracking eggs and usually what happens is that they when they crack it it opens too quickly and then it all slides down the front of the kitchen cabinet right it's so it happens so often to me um so those are little tricks that we know that how can we save the egg before it falls off the kitchen counter like every single time um but the you know the the history of pancakes where did oatmeal first come from you know is all of this ex experience um based to it and then sit and eat with them that's um that's just so so key and also about sitting and eating with them um don't ever eat anything in front of them that you don't want them to eat basically that's a really it may seem really really simple but if we don't want them to eat you know i have my my stash of chocolate i don't i'm not a big um 
I don't have really a sweet tooth, but I do like a bit of chocolate, and it's just hidden where they can't see it, and I wouldn't eat it in front of them because it's too much of temptation. And even with babies, you know, even with babies, if you um if you open a pack of crisps, you know, crisps they come in that really appealing wrapper which crunches really well, um, and they may be full of rubbish, but they smell amazing, right? To you know, babies sense of smell a whole new experience it's they can hear the crunching they can feel the crunching of the bag that's a sensory experience and we don't want them to eat crisps so don't even from a young baby don't eat crisps in front of them don't eat food in front of them that you don't want them to um you will have we just have to eat all of that stuff when we're in bed they we have to eat it when they're in bed sorry we can eat it when we're in bed as well actually does anyone have any questions around that and i hope that um gives you a few ideas um, it would be great to do a full workshop on food, wouldn't it? That would be really fun to do. Um, I love teaching about, about food and all the, the cool things you can do with children, actually, around food. Um, it doesn't seem like there's any questions. So let's just quickly uh, recap. So when we think of food, mealtimes and eating with young children, we're thinking about the experience of it, creating a, a whole sensory experience around it. We don't need to trick them into eating things by making cat shapes out of our toast or, I don't know, pretending broccoli is a dinosaur or anything like that. You know, we don't need to do, we don't need to use any tricks um, about it. Thank you, Emma. Um, what we do is we create an experience around it. So they're involved as much as possible, even if it's a tiny bit in the process. Um, uh, play in their natural human tendencies. And natural human tendencies are exploration and curiosity. They are going to want to touch it and taste it and squidge it and all of those things. That's okay. It's messy, but it's okay. That's what they need to do. Um, oh, no. Sorry, Tinker, it's really hard, isn't it? Tinker says, thank you for this, my struggle lately, resisting her chairs, her food, everything. Yeah, it's really, really hard. Um, um, Self-improvement. So they're going to want to prepare their food at whatever level it is. Um, from a, a baby can have a wooden toddler knife so they can cut safely when they feel ready. And as it's wooden, when they're not cutting, they can just chew on it and nibble it and that's fine. Um, and then the third thing, what can they do to be an active participant in this process, an active member of the community? What can they do to help? What can they do for themselves? Where can they make a choice between oatmeal and pancakes if it's breakfast? Or would you, um, and I said actually the other day in the workshop, for me, the, the, the choice isn't you're going to have this or this from the fridge. The choice is would you like cheese first or fruit first? You know, um, that's, uh, that's what the choice is. Um, so think of it as an experience. It's not um, living to eat, not eating to live. It's not about getting fuel inside of them. They are mammals and they know when they are hungry. What our work to do is to engage them so they can have that love of food that Pavarotti did. <laughs> Emma, great question. If they don't eat, would I let them go to bed without eating? Um, Oh my goodness, and Tinker wrote the same question. Um, they do, well, there's two things here. One, they do learn, I mean, between um, Olivia was two and three, we had a real battle about her refusing to eat at supper time. And it was the hardest thing in the world, and I would say, um, there's going to be more to eat in the morning. 
there's going to be more to eat in the morning. Supper's finished, there's going to be more to eat in the morning. Um, that's what uh, I did when I could tell that there was this resistance. What I have noticed um, recently um, with Olivia and Harry, when they started school at the beginning of the year, is they do occasionally get hungry. So what, I, what I've offered is... Um, we finish supper and what have you, everything absolutely fine. They have their bath. And then just before they get into bed, um, if one of them says they're hungry, I, I, I offer what's called our emergency banana. They can have an emergency banana just before they go to bed, just before they brush their teeth, for example. Because I, because as we know, bananas will really fill them up and they contain the enzyme, don't they, that helps you sleep. So I would have that as a backup. The only thing I'd say with doing that with younger children is that the banana can then be the focus rather than the meal. What we really want to do, and this is a really fine line, but what we really want to do is keep the focus on the meal time. Um, Tinker, could you just try, um, and Emma, try tweaking the supper time, literally by move it 15 minutes earlier or even 15 minutes later. Do you see what I mean? Tweak it a little bit because sometimes just the time if they're as i say for olivia and harry they won't eat well if they're if they're too tired just by moving their their supper time to 5 15 has been life-changing in terms of the amount that they eat one they've got more time olivia's a slow eater and harry's a fast eater but what will happen he will get down he will play and then he'll panic and go oh i'm hungry and then come back to the table for the last five minutes and then wolf down like another bowl of yogurt or what have you so just tweak with your supper time that can help so you know, can they have their bath first and supper afterwards? I don't know your 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 nighttime rhythm, but sometimes that can help. If they're too tired, they won't eat. And I know that sounds really counterintuitive that if they're tired, they would want to eat quickly and a lot and then go to bed, but they really can't, particularly as, as Olivia's so tiny still. You know, she's only 16 months, isn't she? So um, she's, uh, she's, she's not she's not able to rationalize yet so we i think i really feel like when they're little it's our responsibility to, to firstly tweak the tweak the rhythm the, the routine in the evening to see if we can find that's a stage that they eat a bit more and then you've always got the option of a of an emergency banana but what we don't want is to kind of offer thing after thing after thing and and make it seem like supper isn't the real the real deal i was um I'd say, I don't want to use the word strict, but I was very clear on the boundaries when they're younger. It's only in recent months that I've offered this banana because I, I don't know, it just felt, it just felt right now. I don't know why. I can't really explain it. I guess it's just my intuition. And I've noticed it's happened since they've, since they've been both at school and maybe they're getting hungrier because they're learning more. I don't know. But um, as they're little, I think it's really, really good to hold, to, to hold um, boundaries, but no, that you've got um, emergency banana in the back pocket as well. Um, but yeah, tweak, my first suggestion, I always say to parents, is tweak with the bedtime rhythm first, with the supper time, the time of supper time first, and then look at other things. Um, so I hope that helps. Thank you everyone for, oh yes, hang on. Uh, yes, Tinker, yeah. Tinker says, yes, we're definitely eating too late lately because of the summer we play later until later. Yeah, let's try. Honestly, it's it's really really worth um, it's really really worth trying and and as you say it's hard because of the um, because our weather's getting hotter we want to keep them out to sort of like six o'clock but if we do keep them out later well certainly for me for Olivia and Harry I mean they're six and four but they still need to go to bed at, at, at 
at a, at a decent time at seven o'clock and they still need to have supper at 5.15. So um, could you, Tinker, maybe tweak the routine, um, have supper and then she can have 10 minutes play afterwards, you know, put the put the sand timer on. That's what I do with Olivia and Harry. You know, they um, if they want to play after bath time, they can or they want to read or they want to colour, what have you. But we have supper, we have bath, brush their teeth. And then if they want a bit more play, um, if you want to sit on the table, we've got a nice terrace that sort of overlooks the community. So they can sit on the terrace and watch everyone go past or what have you. You can have a bit more play time. So, um, yeah, just tweak, tweak your, your evening rhythm and see what works for you. Super. Thank you, Emma. Thanks for joining. Thank you, everyone, and for all of your questions. And um, let me know how you're going with your Ramadan challenge. It is day three of Ramadan Writing Challenge. Please go to my feed earlier on in the week if you haven't yet heard it. And we did a live on finding your gifts and working out what you're gonna write about. Um, it's 15 minutes of writing every day throughout Ramadan to um, birth a book. If we, um, if we write for 15 minutes per day at the end of Ramadan, 30 days, we will have enough material to publish our own ebook. So that's what our challenge is. And you can write about whatever you like. You can write about your life story or your profession or anything that you love, your passion, anything. Um, but yeah, find out more details on my feed. Thank you so much for joining me. Send in um, more questions for Instagram Live. I love to receive them and um, we'll get through as many as we can. I've got a really exciting Instagram Live coming up soon. It's going to be a special. I don't think because of the time zone it's going to be at this time but we'll do another one um, probably at the weekend with um, an AMI elementary um, guide, elementary teacher from the States who is going to speak to us about developing moral justice in children and how that happens from the period of six to nine, developing moral justice and the sense of right and wrong and how this window is very, very interesting. And I've seen it so much in Olivia recently. Um, if she thinks that something isn't right or someone's being rude or disrespectful, then she really, really is like an activist about it. And something happened. I'll tell the full story on the live, but it, something and I'm and I've got um, uh, a six to nine a six to nine directress guide to come and talk to us on the live about it and I cannot wait for that that's going to be in a couple of weeks I'm really really excited about that um, but send in your questions thank you so much for joining me Ramadan Karim and I will see you next week take care bye bye